Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Hey there, we have a awesome podcast for you today. Uh, when I was trying to think of a guest who can be both topical from a COVID perspective, as well as still be true to the startup competitors, talk with a founder, find somebody who's trying to grow and scale a business and help understand some of the challenges that they face from a competition perspective and what that means from a go-to-market perspective. John just absolutely felt like a slam dunk and boy, did he deliver on that. I really enjoyed this episode. Uh, and every time I get a chance to talk with him, just super impressed. So I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did in recording it. Felt like there was a ton of value there. If you are not a subscriber to the podcast, please do that. Leave us a review. Would love any feedback on this episode or any others. And thank you so much for spending your time with us here on the podcast and supporting uh, what we're doing and what the founders who come on the show are doing. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have John Ramey, who's the founder and CEO of The Prepared. John, welcome. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start things off with a quick elevator pitch for The Prepared and what you and the team are doing? Theprepared.com teaches people how to get ready for emergencies, things ranging from everyday events like car accidents or job loss or a medical problem up through natural disasters and big black swan type of events. So we teach people the, the framework of modern emergency preparedness. We do gear reviews. We teach skills. We have video courses, community. So it's basically a collection of content and resources for people figuring out how to be uh, a modern prepper. And can you talk a little bit about the business model behind the prepared, how you guys make money, how you think of growth? What, what does that look like? We sit at that kind of interesting intersection of content and community and commerce. In the early days, and, and most of what we've done to date has been very wire cutter style content, where we produce long form best in class content. Most of our content is number one or number two on Google for whatever topic it's in. Average article is about 7,000 words, takes weeks of time to prepare. And we'll, we'll explain to people, hey, you're worried about the PG&E blackouts uh, rolling through California. Here's the type of stuff that you should do and buy to make that as least disruptive for you as possible. And here's the review that we've done testing different solar panels and battery packs. And then if you buy some of the things we recommend, we make an affiliate commission. So pretty straightforward affiliate stuff combined with just really great best-in-class content. 
We are starting to do some more direct revenue streams where we're selling video courses, some other projects that are in the works. But on the flip side, we have intentionally avoided a lot of the gross icky stuff about online content from the last decade. Uh, We don't have any ads on our site. We don't do any influencer, quote unquote, kind of crap. We don't have any advertorials or quid pro quo sponsored posts. We, we just avoid all of that kind of icky web content kind of stuff. No paywalls, nothing like that. We provide good content. And if people like it, they support us with affiliate commissions. They support us with Patreon and donations. And they support us with buying the things that we offer, like our video courses. And well, I normally ask, so I'll, I'll, let's stick to the format and then maybe I'll, I'll come back and, and ask some more about that because I'd love to, to dig into a little bit around why you've chosen to go that route. But maybe before we do that, current status of the business, any sort of vanity metrics you can share about the business today to give people who are listening an idea of where, where you guys are as a company? Yeah. So just to anchor it in timing, we're talking in April 2020. We are in still in the height of this COVID lockdown, right? I, I threw up the business in about the end of 2017. And it started for me just as kind of a weekend side hustle. Uh, it was a topic that I already was passionate about as a, as a consumer and community member and had started teaching other people as well. So I just kind of started throwing up these blog posts so that I didn't have to repeat myself to the people that I was teaching. And then it struck a chord and started growing from there. I went full-time on it in 2018. And up through, we raised a, a small round of funding at the end of 2018. I brought on two people to the team. So there was three of us total throughout 2019. And through 2019, we had already become one of the most prominent emergency preparedness brands and websites on the internet. And one of the things we're most proud of is that we are the most trusted influencer or content source in the entire emergency preparedness market. So even before COVID, we were doing pretty well. We were organically growing 10% a month, which isn't huge unicorn venture scale, but for the type of business we wanted to build, we were thrilled with that, just this organic 10% month over month. Then up through the end of 2019, we started growing even faster. And then this COVID stuff happened. And we were one of the first Western organizations to point to start coverage at on COVID and point a finger at it and say, this is going to be scary. Here's what you should do. And so starting in January 2020, up through then February, March, April, through this whole COVID experience, we just exploded. We, we grew 25x within a week. And it's uh, been a wild ride ever since. I decided to put my foot on the gas, grow the team. So we went from three people on February 1st to we're now 15 people and just trying to keep one hand on the wheel. Yeah. And you're, if people are not familiar or haven't taken a look, your COVID coverage is amazing. Particularly for me, one of the favorite things I like to do each night on Twitter is check like the quick daily rundown that you guys post super concise look at kind of the latest and what's happening and stuff like that. I've, I've found that to be really powerful. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Um, 
we've wondered if it's we start to wonder if we're being too gloomy, but it's because there's a lot of gloomy stuff to talk about. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about kind of that business decision to step on the gas with COVID and early 2020. What uh, I would love to know, what were some of your thoughts around like, because I'm sure it's scary, right? Like, what if this turns out to not be that big of a deal and I raise a bunch of money, hire a bunch of people and the growth is not sustainable to what if this turns out to be, you know, does turn out to be a, a thing that brings a ton of visibility to the site and I miss a market opportunity by not capitalizing on that momentum. I, what were some of the thoughts that either you went through yourself or in talking with the team or other investors that kind of went through your head as you started to think about it? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, it was a thought process. And that's important, right? Is that it wasn't something that that happened unintentionally or passively. We The, the people involved in this project had enough experience to, to be aware of that potential false positive honeypot. Because it's common, right? That's the whole basis for your question, which is that sometimes in startup, something can happen that gives you that false positive or leads you down the wrong direction, or one major customer becomes a squeaky wheel and you end up only becoming a service business just for that one customer, so on and so forth. I think what was most important was that we were just conscientious about it. We didn't have a crystal ball, right? You can do the best that you can and and hopefully you don't get stuck in analysis paralysis because at some point you just have to make a decision with imperfect information. But we went through that process. I I was actually resisting because in, in February 2020, as this COVID stuff was just exploding, a lot of people were coming to us saying, put your foot on the gas. Please put your foot on the gas. And I was actually the one saying, hey, wait a second, let's let's not put our foot on the brake, but let's at least take a moment to talk about this and think about this. And so I was calling up some of our investors, other people in the market, people that I bounce ideas off of, and just tried to talk through these things. And of course, everybody understood the general trap that you want to avoid of making investments based on this perceived trajectory that ends up being false. But the reason we ended up making the decision to put our foot on the gas was not because of the superficial metrics that exploded because of COVID, because that can come and go, right? It's kind of like when you would get a, a TechCrunch bump because they talked about your startup and all of a sudden you'd get you know 2,000 inbound visitors to your site and some people signing up for your email list and the dopamine hits and you think, hooray, we've made it. And then of course it evaporates two days later. We felt that that wasn't the case here because the whole reason we're working on this project to begin with is because we had some beliefs about where this market was going. We believed, for example, that emergency preparedness was going mainstream. It was no longer considered this kind of fringy, extremist, doomsday, tinfoil hat kind of stuff. The whole reason we even started the business was because we believed people like me and you uh, and millions of other people were thinking about things like, how do I get ready for an earthquake if I live in San Francisco? Uh, what do I do if I lose my job and I can't get food stamps? How am I going to survive? So because we had these beliefs and these theories about where the market was going, 
and why we would then, or what kind of position we would then have in that journey, we didn't get stuck in the superficial vanity metrics of the COVID bump and then extrapolate from that. Instead, we understood that COVID just was another catalyst to accelerate this trend that we believed was already happening. So prepping was already going mainstream. We already had extremely unique audiences and demographics before COVID. And so rather than extrapolating off the COVID numbers, we thought more subjectively and felt that no matter what happens with COVID, it was enough of a of a catalyst or it poured fuel on that fire where this hypothesis that we already believed in was only going to get stronger and bigger. And no matter what happened after COVID, even if even if even if they discovered a vaccine in April, you know, two months after we made this decision, we decided it was still worth putting our foot on the gas because of the effects of what this event would have on the market and the zeitgeist and the types of consumers that were coming into that market. And that's why we decided to put our foot on the gas, not because, oh, look at this spike in traffic we've had, let's extrapolate, but rather the underlying subjective market thesis. And I I wrote down two questions already that I, I suspect are highly related. So one of them is the, you know, why no ads and or none of the icky stuff. Uh, and I think that's probably related to why, you know, what do you think makes you the most trusted kind of source uh, in this topic area? I like what, what's the philosophy behind that? Because I think there's got to be a tremendous pressure, particularly right now, I would imagine, with the traffic that you are seeing and, and some of the coverage you guys have been putting out to become an influence marketing organization and run a bunch of ads. And I'm sure that could be very lucrative. So I love a little bit of the philosophy behind, you know, why that's important to you initially and, and how, you know, when you think of competition long-term, how you think that helps create a wall um, or maybe a moat is a better way to say it, a, a moat between you and potential competitors in the space. Yeah, Absolutely. And we, we don't want to come across as a martyr or self-righteous, but uh, we are absolutely, we choose to leave revenue on the table every day by not doing what many other people consider to be just standard practice. Well, of, of course, if you have, if you're a website that talks about products, of course you do quid pro quo stuff with the brands out there, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And so we we have chosen to leave a lot of revenue on the table, both for kind of aspirational reasons and also for economic business reasons. In terms of the aspirational side, some of it is just what I believe as a consumer, right? Like I really dislike the way that the internet is evolving when it comes to content and the type of value that you can get. This is why we have a lot of the problems that we do in our current society with clickbait defamation and lazy journalism and lack of content. And I, I can tell you, this was my belief when I founded the business. And it has gotten stronger every day since because the more that we have gotten involved in this world of website content, working with writers, working with companies for product reviews and things like that, the more I've just become dis- dissolute, not even disillusioned, but nihilistic about the state of the web. I mean, it 
there's almost nothing that you can consume online that you can trust. It's 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 corrupted and the economics are wrong. And I'm understand this is not me saying something civilian and or kind of uh, trivial like oh the the media the mainstream media is bad it, it's not that it's that the entire engine is broken this was something that i experienced in my career so my first big silicon valley startup was an ad tech company and the whole reason i started that advertising tech company which primarily worked with online publishers was because i recognized this economic problem Right where where a publisher used to make a dollar, they started making ten cents, and as a content business, that forces the types of consequences that we have seen since. We've seen less quality journalism and more listicles of cat pictures, and that's because the underlying economics couldn't support having a newsroom full of qualified people spending two weeks chasing a story. Or, or months chasing a story, for example. And so the ad tech business that I started in the Valley, its, its purpose was to try to fix that economic engine so that we could continue to have free content on the web that was quality. And so the way that company accomplished that goal was we worked with publishers, for example, almost all of the big tech websites. TechCrunch, uh, GigaOM, Mashable, Tim Ferriss's website, all those kinds of things. They all used our product so that like in Tim Ferriss's example, he didn't want to have all the kind of crappy Google ads on his website. He wanted to have one specific high quality ad that generated more money for him and was a better experience for his users. And we, we did that. We powered that for him and for the majority of the top 1000 websites on the internet. So I've, I've kind of had this belief as a consumer on the internet for a long time, tried to work on it as an advertiser helping publishers. And then now in this case, I'm a publisher myself and I'm trying to embody those beliefs that we can build a meaningful media content organization without resorting to this icky stuff. And then the flip side of that coin, as I mentioned, is it, it also makes business sense. I believe it's a hypothesis, but I believe because I think a lot of people feel the way that I just spent the last few minutes describing. I think a lot of people on the internet are just really starting to get tired of the crap, the stuff that they can't trust, knowing that the vast majority of Amazon reviews are fake, not getting explanatory journalism. Instead, they get really thin clickbait kind of stuff. Or even just in the way that we construct our videos, for example, we put some videos up on YouTube and they're three to four minutes. There's no introduction. It's very quick. And we've had people say to us, thank you so much for not for being the type of video that doesn't require me to listen to it at 1.5 X speed because the signal to noise ratio is so bad and people spend six minutes up front talking about their life story and asking me to subscribe. You guys just cut through that crap, got to the point, gave me my value, and I could move on. And so that kind of spirit, I think the consumers on the internet are changing and they are feeling this, even if it's just subconscious at this point. Even if I didn't have the personal philosophical beliefs about the kind of business that I want to run and the kind of internet that I want to be a, a citizen of, 
I think it also makes sense as a modern organization to say that phase of the last 10 years is done and people are tired of that crap and let's figure out a way to do it better. I'm really glad I asked that question. Thanks. I appreciate the thoughtfulness of that response. When you think of competitors to the prepared, who or what comes to mind? So like most startups, you can we can talk about distinct competitors like Organization X and, and Website Y. And then there's also apathy, right? Like when it comes to emergency preparedness, the majority of people in this country don't. <laughs> they just don't. So in some ways, our competitor is people not doing anything. It's apathy. Uh, we also consider a competitor to be these fragmented social groups. And it makes sense when you understand our market. If you take, like our, our target audience is a modern, rational person who doesn't want to quit society and move into a bunker and you know talk about how the Illuminati are, are using chemtrails and fluoride to take over the world. They're modern, rational people that just want to be able to survive something like COVID or a wildfire or a natural disaster or, or whatever. And so that kind of person, when they would go on the internet in the past, like over the last 10 years, when they would go on the internet and try to figure out, I live in San Francisco, what, what should I have in my earthquake bag? There wasn't a lot of quality content for them. It was a lot of the tinfoil hat, fringy, political kind of stuff, because the last 10 years of this market was kind of dominated by you know, the type of people that thought Obama was going to enact Sharia law in this country, you know, some of the fringy alt-right type of folks. And what would happen is when a, when a kind of quote-unquote more mainstream consumer would go online and try to get this help, they would run into that really kind of low-quality fringy crap. And one of two things would happen. They would either give up, or actually one of three things would happen. They'd either give up and just say, screw it, I'm not going to deal with it. Or they would go in the closet about it. They just kind of bite their tongue, you know, do what they could, but be very closeted about it, either because they didn't want to participate in those fringy communities or they were afraid to talk about it because of the stigma that came along with it, which is why, for example, 10 years ago, I was a closeted prepper. When I was in, I was one of the first outed preppers in Silicon Valley, meaning I was in the closet about it because of the stigma. And the third option is then people would see that there wasn't a great place for them to go to, like a, like a big website. And instead, they would regress into these very fragmented social communities. So what would happen over the last few years is a lot of private Facebook groups, subreddits, uh, hosted forums would be created kind of this fragmented ad hoc network where someone would just kind of find a like-minded group of people and they would share information privately because they had nowhere else that they could go. And I mention that because we consider that a competitor. If you're a person who wants to go learn about preparedness, right? we don't want them to have to go to those fragmented communities anymore. We want to give them a legitimate resource destination that they can go to. But in a way, that creates a competitive situation. Specifically talking about companies... Uh, especially in the last few months with COVID and the general recognition of these trends that I've been talking about, 
we've had a number of fast followers. Many of them are on the more direct-to-consumer kind of side. And in fact, one of them are the Kardashians. So a couple months ago, the Kardashians launched a startup. They're using a lot of the standard DTC kind of direct-to-consumer playbook that we've seen developed over the last few years with Casper and Dollar Shave Club and Hymns and so on. And they're trying to take that approach where it's a lot of glossy marketing and you know, Chrissy Teigen is doing an Instagram about here's my earthquake kit, kind of very influencer-y kind of stuff. So we've had a lot of entrance in that side of the market where people are selling, you know, here's a $200 emergency kit, uh, dear millennial who doesn't want to think anymore about it. But we also tend not to play in that market. We think that's a, a different type of consumer, a, a different type of use case. So they're competitive from an attention perspective, but not from a not something that we really worry about. So that market segmentation. So like I'm looking at the website right now at some of the courses that might be coming soon, right? Water essentials, building a shelter, firecraft, wellness, and first aid. How do you think about when you guys think of content? So, you know, current (laughs) today topics of COVID aside, when you guys think about, the content to put out or the places to focus, how are you segmenting the market in terms of who that mainstream customer is for you? Like what, what do those conversations look like internally when you try to figure out who's our customer? What do they want? Because I, I feel like it, it's harder with your topic and maybe this is an incorrect assumption. I just have to assume it's harder for you to just reach out and ask people, right? Because there, there is historically the stigma around your topic, like there's a lot of people who, who wouldn't want to answer or, you know, would maybe if they do answer, they give a softer or less truthful answer than what they're really thinking. How do you guys do that market research to figure out what's, what's the right content to, to come out with? Yeah, it's, I mean, you've already touched on why it's not the, the simplest straightforward conversation that it could be. Part of it is me and my gut right? So when it comes to our... So for example, one of the things that we did for this market was create a framework that people could understand. Because before, like a couple minutes ago, when I was saying that there wasn't really a great resource for people to go to, part of that was that there just wasn't a place that made it understandable for normal people. It had an extremely high learning curve and it made people feel like they either had to be either not at all or a full lifestyle change. And part of what we did for the market was to create a, I get you could consider it like a framework or a stack of here's how a modern person, a modern household can think about emergency preparedness. So when it came to that part of our content, like, how do we want to frame things? What kind of philosophies do we have? A lot of that came just internally from our skill sets of being product people, for example, because you could even describe it as kind of the same way that a product manager or a UX person would think about what is the right way for me to solve X problem for Y person. We used that same skill set to think about how do we craft a modern emergency preparedness framework in a way that isn't obvious or established yet? 
So that was something that just kind of came from us and our gut and our skill sets. We then combine it with, as you said, you know, typical get out of the building, talk to people, customer discovery kind of stuff. One of the things that told me that this business was worth investing in was the fact that I didn't have to do it wasn't too difficult for me to get that kind of customer feedback so i had a belief that millions of people that were kind of more mainstream and 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 rational wanted to get into emergency preparedness and i had a long build up of proving that because you know a lot a lot of entrepreneurs start something because they're pissed off about something in a market which certainly was true for me as a prepper as a consumer I was, I've been bothered by this market for 15 years, right? I, I mentioned earlier, I had to be closeted about it and I hated that. So there was always part of me that was like, I'm going to go fix that problem. But I didn't do it in the past because I felt like the market wasn't ready for it. And part of the reason I felt the market wasn't ready for it was because it was too hard to get people to talk about it or to raise their hand or to share it. And one of the things that I started seeing changing kind of in the 2016, 17, 18 period, partly catalyzed by the 2016 election, partly catalyzed by some of the bad natural disasters we've had in the last few years, I saw more and more evidence that it was going mainstream and that more of these people were willing to raise their hand and and self-identify that this was something that they would do and even share. And so that itself is a is a guiding validation. And it's just grown all along. So daily, we get inbound emails from people saying, just, just showering us with love. And that made our job really easy because you know, nothing nothing tells you that you are on the right track when you have people coming to your door and saying, I'll give you money to go faster. And so it, it kind of makes those decision-making processes, you know, uh, a lot easier. All right, John, do you uh, do you have any swag that you have for the team at The Prepared, whether that's contributors or employees or anything like that? Actually, no, nothing yet. Uh, that is not an uncommon answer. If you were going to come up with swag uh, for the folks on the team or the people who are involved in The Prepared universe, what do you think you would do? What are the types of things that would be on brand? You know, we've done some giveaways and, and what would be on brand is around some of this kind of basic $20 to $40 survival gear kind of stuff, like a like a water filter or a compass or stormproof matches, you know, things like that. Awesome. Well, we have Fuel Merchandise Group, who is a sponsor of this show. You can find them at fuelmerchandise.com. And uh, they, I think I've actually seen water filters out there. I don't know that I've seen all that stuff. I don't think I've seen a compass or anything like that, but I I do know that they have some of that stuff out there. And there's a good chance if they don't have it on their website, they can help you get it. If you're listening to this podcast and you want a 10% discount on your first order, you can go to fuelmerchandise.com, tell them that you heard about them on Startup Competitors, and uh, they'll be happy to help you out. Awesome. At what point Along this journey, did you know that you had product market fit? You know, there's there's the standard ways people talk about it, right? Like certain net promoter scores and things like that. I actually have not done 
Like I haven't done a net promoter score survey of my audience, for example, partly because myself and the team, we have enough personal experience to have some of those more kind of simple 80-20 calibrations already, right? We can kind of, we, we can read the tea leaves pretty well to an extent. Of course, nobody has a crystal ball, but we, we had some headwind to start with, or I'm sorry, some tailwind to start with. And then it was a combination of SEO, which I'll explain in a second, the feedback that we were getting from people, the engagement metrics that we were seeing. Our engagement metrics, for example, are four to five X the industry standard. Give me a couple of examples of an engagement metric. Uh, Time on site or uh, RPM, revenue per thousand visitors. So how we were acquiring people, how we were retaining people, what kind of engagement they were, we were seeing on our website, what kind of unit economics we were seeing. Those were all an order of magnitude better than industry standard. Um, The fact that we were growing organically without any marketing effort or budget. Uh, The fact that we could put up something that frankly was embarrassing and people would still love it. You know, which is another good example of an indicator. I mentioned SEO. This is another good example. When I was thinking about starting the business, I was really worried about SEO because I had this experience with publishers and I knew how difficult that that game could be, especially in crowded keyword markets. Like for example, if you Google best survival food, I want to be, you know, at the top. But that's obviously a a pretty crowded keyword. But I took it as validation that we were doing the right thing when I could put up a piece of content for best survival food and it would become number one on Google. And the reason I took that as validation is because Google's algorithm has evolved in such a way where it's, it's not simple like it was in the past where it was just how many backlinks do you have? They're effectively trying to decide algorithmically what content is the best, what content satiates the search of this user the best. And so the fact that our content was disproportionately skyrocketing to the top of Google, like we're, we're number one and number two for prepping, quote unquote prepping. And that tells us that the community, the market, was rejecting or not finding value in everything else. And they were finding value from this tiny little blog with one or three people. And so there's all those different little pieces of validation, direct feedback, inferred feedback, tangential feedback like Google that together told us, yeah, that this is something and you've got product market fit. Similar Really related question to that, that same question about product market fit. When did you decide or what made you decide maybe is a better question to move this from a hobby to a business? Because I I know you'd said, you know, this started with you wanting to write things down that you were telling people anyway, right, to to make it easier for you to relay some of that knowledge. And then at, at some point, you know, you decided to 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 take the plunge and and actually turn this into a a real concern. What was that inflection point for you? What what made you think, you know, this is the right time, this is the right, you know, next step for me personally. I'd love anything you can share around that decision point. 
There wasn't a single moment. It was something that happened, you know, over a period of, of weeks. A lot of it was what I just described about the, the validation indicators that we were seeing. I think at the time I was t- telling my friends and so on that it just, it smelled like a perfect storm of uh, a perfect con- uh, convergence of factors. Because I've been around the startup game a long time. I'm an angel investor. I was a full-time startup mentor for years. You know, I, I have touched, mentored, or evaluated thousands of early stage companies in my career. And so that kind of personal lens, those, those lens that I could look through combined with the, the validation that we were seeing combined with my personal desire for the kind of lifestyle and the kind of business that I wanted to have. I've done the big Silicon Valley. I've, I've been a part of raising over $125 million. I've built Silicon Valley style companies. I've built the complete opposite kind of quote unquote lifestyle businesses and everything in between. And I was in a mindset where I knew that I wanted to do something again, but I also knew that I didn't want to get on. I, I knew that I wanted to build a particular type of company, part of which was I knew that I did not want to build another super crazy power law, VC math, Silicon Valley kind of company. And so combined with the validation that we were getting on the project, combined with my understanding of the market, combined with my kind of personal belief that the market needed to move in this direction, nobody else was doing it or doing it well. So, okay, fine, I'll do it. Combined with being attracted to this business model, this type of business, you know, having a smaller group of people that I enjoy working with, doing cool stuff that helps people not having to think not having to make short term decisions for example by doing the icky gross revenue stuff that we talked about earlier all those stars just kind of aligned and as i was thinking about what to do that one was just far and away the most attractive i appreciate that background that you provided there in, in terms of life before the prepared I, I neglected to ask your background earlier so that that's good to to share that lens what's been the hardest part of launching this business, what's been the biggest challenge you face to date? One challenge uh, to segue off of some things I just referenced, I felt that I wanted to build a business that was something in between your traditional venture scale business or a quote unquote lifestyle business, which I, I tend to refer to as a proportional business. There's been a lot of conversation around the need for these kinds of shades of gray in the middle. And I'm thankful for that. I've been an advocate for that. Another part of the background we didn't talk about is I was an innovation advisor to President Obama and worked a lot on just this general topic in this country and around the world of how do we create more entrepreneurs in more places? How do we instigate projects that places like Silicon Valley are ignoring? Things like health and education and energy and so on. And so I, I am very much a fan of having more flavors of ice cream rather than just you either do a lifestyle business or you move to Silicon Valley and do that whole thing. And at the time, like when I put our round of funding together in 2018, even though it's only even though it was only two years ago, that was still a very new concept in 2018. 
Rand Fishkin, the founder of SEO of Moz, SEO Moz, he did a, a similar deal like mine in 2018. I did one, and I think one other entrepreneur did one. So when we were even putting our fundraising together or our legal documents or all those little decisions that make up kind of the karma and, and, and culture and DNA of a company, we had to create a lot of that from scratch. Because nowadays, if you're on a like an ex, a, a standard VC math tech startup accelerator kind of path, that that path is pretty well defined. But these shades of gray in the middle are more nascent, they're less developed. And so you've got less, you know, you don't have paperwork templates that you can use like the safe document for convertible notes. You don't have lawyers and attorneys that really understand these things. You don't have investors that necessarily understand these things. So it wasn't monumentally difficult, but there was a lot of overhead in trying to figure those things out, even educate a market about this is a way that you can build a business. Here's what it means. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it smells like. So that's been one issue kind of on the meta company building side. A quick example on more of the tactical execution side is something we touched on earlier. You know, one of the fundamental risks for our business is, is it possible to build a profitable, successful business on the internet without resorting to tribalism and clickbait and all that kind of crap? We, we feel very good that there is that path, but that is something that we, that we think about and deal with all the time, particularly because we are trying part of our, we believe part of our product value to our customers is by not being tribal or not being extreme. We hear from our audience, thank you. The reason I come to you, or like what you referenced earlier about looking at our daily COVID recaps, we've had people say to us, I'm being very intentional about what content and media I consume right now. You're one of the few places that I do consume because it's rational and grounded. So we believe that there's a, it's not just we don't like politics, it's that we think that they're part of our value proposition is not having politics. But we know, historically speaking, for example, the newspapers that have done the best with paywalls are the ones that have the most tribal identity behind them. Right. And so there's that mismatch. We feel like, the mar- we, we know that the market wants something rational, no clickbait, no cr- none of that crap. Simultaneously, the world is such that it's, it's hard to do that and succeed. So it, that manifests itself in lots of ways, but that would be a challenge that we face. As you look forward, what do you think is the next big challenge that you and the team are going to hit? Well, something that I'm dealing with right now is just scaling me. When you think about content brands that struck a chord early, you can think of examples like Wait But Why or even TechCrunch, right? Like in the early days, TechCrunch equaled Michael Arrington. And people liked Michael Arrington's voice. They liked the way that he talked about and described things. But then as as organizations grow and you hire more people, it can be very difficult to scale that voice. I don't mean to talk about kind of a self-serving topic, but it is a, a real struggle that we're facing right now because there's there's something novel about the way that we put our content together 
which means we can't just go hire any of the infinite supply of freelance writers that exist on the internet because that's the old model and some of my some of my teammates used to run very large websites you know 5 to 10 million uniques a month for a blog where they would just pay freelance writers $250 a pop to generate the same type of crap that every other website has and so we have this problem where because the way that we put our content together the way that we think about our philosophy, our stack that I referenced earlier, the way that we make product decisions, the way that we structure our content, the way that we avoid some of the annoying stuff. Like, I don't know if you're like me, but you know how if you pull up a blog post these days, you can pretty much instantly skip the first three paragraphs because it's just regurgitating the same lead-in crap that you already know? Yeah. We don't, we don't want to do that. It's this classic kind of catch-22 of we're doing something different which means there aren't a lot of people that already know how to do it that we can just go hire. So how do we scale our, our deep content creation outside of just me and, and my fingers on a keyboard in a way that doesn't erode our voice, erode our quality uh, in the way that so many other organizations experience as they scale? So that's, that's something we are acutely dealing with right now. Give me your read. Uh... And recognizing, um, you know, COVID is not your full-time job, even though it it may seem like a a big focus right now. Give me your read on what you think the, you know, the, where we're at in that journey and, and what the impact looks like over the next couple of months and then what you think that means for your business specifically. So I, I'd love a, a little bit of a, you know, crystal ball fortune teller look, if you're willing to do that, knowing that you're no more of an expert than anybody else. And then I, what I'd really like to hear is then how you're translating that from a business strategy perspective into what that means for the prepared. So we have, we certainly have been working with experts. Part of Part of this theme that you've been hearing from me of doing better content, you know, rather than lazy clickbait kind of stuff. Part of that is actually doing research and fact checking and so on. Uh, so we do work with experts. For example, we brought in pretty early in our COVID coverage. So we, we started COVID coverage on January 10th. And I think around January 20th, for example, we brought in uh, we, we retained an expert who's one of the heads of bioinformatics at one of the major pharmaceutical companies. So this is a person who's got a PhD in big data looking at virology and drug kind of algorithmic drug uh, creation and pandemic analysis and things like this. So we, we bring in experts like that to help guide and inform our coverage. And then we effectively act as kind of the curator and the people that know how to take that knowledge and put it on a web page. So we started our COVID coverage on January 10th, which was very early. Uh, we, we basically everything that has happened until now, the end of April, we predicted in public on February 3rd. So one of my main messages to people about this whole thing is that all of this is predictable. Like, frankly, none of this is really a surprise. Like, it is not a surprise that this could happen. It is not a surprise 
that our government would be woefully inept at responding to it. It is not a surprise that our infrastructure can't handle events like this. It's not a surprise that hospitals are facing a severe shortage of PPE. We, we knew all these things ahead of time, right? Bill Gates gave a TED talk in 2015 specifically about how the biggest black swan event that he's worried about is a pandemic. We've had report after analysis, after congressional hearing, after any other data point that said that painted a picture that we are now living. So none of this was, was a surprise. It was frankly all predictable. So we, in Fe on February 3rd, we laid out kind of a roadmap of scenarios, kind of a, a good middle and bad scenario and the different type of triggers and factors that would affect it. On February 20th, we made the decision internally that containment had failed. Because if you remember, up until that point, the idea was we try to contain it. The travel bans, the, the lockdown in China, and so on. February 20th is when we decided that containment had failed. The mainstream media started talking about containment failing around February, two or three days later, February 22nd, 23rd. And a day after that, 24th, 25th, is when we started seeing just the massive spike in activity. All the food selling out, all the respirators selling out, website traffic up 50x, things like that. And it was at that point <clears throat> that people understood this thing is going to get out. It's going to spread. The world is going to look pretty different. So now when we're kind of in this eye of the storm period, everybody's been at home for a few weeks. I do think we have successfully flattened the curve, right? Like the, the general idea of if we don't do something, this is going to be a horrible disaster. That was true. And the actions that we've taken have worked. So everybody being frustrated at, at home and all the problems we're experiencing, for what it's worth, it has been effective. And if we hadn't done it, we were, we were looking at a million dead worldwide, if not even just in this country. Now we, of course, have some less predictable projections to make looking forward because it all comes down to politics and which, which politician is going to win out on X point and how quickly can the community develop rapid and accurate testing? What does a vaccine look like? So there's, we're starting to get into the realm of where our confidence of predictions is going down because it was easy to predict in January, hey, this thing has an R naught of three and a case fatality rate of 2%. That equals bad. Now it's harder to predict, well, how is this politician going to react? And how is this group of people funded by the, the Koch brothers going to go do a protest in this city? And you know, we're starting to get into a little bit of a realm of, of craziness and, and uh, not based on data and logic. So it's kind of hard to predict. That said, <laughs> that said, uh, it does feel like things are working. I believe that we will probably see some forms of reopening over the summer. It will probably not be a black and white, okay, everything's back to normal. We'll probably have some respites. And then I do believe that we will see a second wave in the fall, which doesn't seem very um, fortune telly anymore because just yesterday, the head of the CDC specifically said, we think that the fall and winter of 2020 into 2021 
is going to be even worse than this one. So we'll have a little bit of a breather. People can go out, get some sun, you know, stretch, go to the movies. And then in the fall, we'll probably start going under lockdown again. And then it'll just simply be a matter of if and when we can either get a vaccine or get our shit together as a country so that we can have proper testing and social isolation to manage it without a vaccine. So I'm optimistic that that is my most likely scenario. There is still a, let's call it a 30% chance that things get markedly worse where we start to have food supply issues. We start to have water supply issues because in January, February, we were telling people, you need to expect to be locked in your home for a few months, but you can also expect that the utilities will stay on. Now we're starting to think about things like the utilities not staying on. We just ran a story yesterday, for example, that some of the critical components, the chemicals and the, the, elements that water treatment facilities use for your local municipal water supply, they're starting to run out of those elements. They have water, but they don't have the other stuff to do their job. Uh, Some of them are running out of credit, right? This happened in the global financial crisis where some of the water treatment facilities, they run on municipal bonds and things like that. They couldn't, there was no financial market to continue feeding the credit to our utility companies. So I I don't think that's likely to happen. I think it's like a 30% chance, but we do still have a very real path as of end of April, 2020, that we start to see significant food supply disruptions, significant water supply disruptions. We see the reopening happen too quickly and and not well. So we see a second wave, Uh, healthcare systems overwhelmed in addition to all the economic impacts, which nobody even still fully understands yet. So we're not out of the woods. It could be handled well if we had competent institutions and leaders, but we don't. So that introduces a lot more risk for what things look like for the next year. I do suspect in some form, we will have social distancing at least for a year. Well, that's cheery. Thanks for that. Kind of kind of all <laughs> over the place, but uh, hopefully yeah. a coherent answer. It was. It's a great answer. Uh, All right. I've kept you over time already. We probably should wrap this up. I want to end on a high note. Give me the maybe the the piece of material or a course or something that you guys are coming out with in the in the future that you personally are excited about because it's an itch you're trying to scratch for yourself, something you're trying to learn or get better at. I'll, I'll give you two: one on kind of a product side, and one on the content side. On the product side, we are just a few days from now releasing what we have been referring to as a kit builder. When it comes to emergency preparedness, things like bug out bags or the kit that you keep in your car over the winter, first aid kits, your pantry with supplies, a lot of emergency preparedness is a collection of stuff. And to date, the way that people do that is with Excel spreadsheets. And so, I've wanted to build something that's kind of like PC Part Picker. If you or anyone in the audience is familiar, it's a popular website that has been around for a long time where if you're going to build your own computer, you can kind of use their tool to theory craft and plan. This will be my motherboard. This will be my CPU. This will be my GPU. And I've always wanted that kind of a tool for emergency preparedness supplies. And people want to use it for all kinds of stuff, like tracking how much food they have, how many calories they have in their pantry, 
or what kind of gear they're going to put together on their truck so that they can, you know, uh, help people to get stuck in the snow. And so it's kind of a way to, to discover and organize and share and collaborate on these collections of gear. And that's going up really soon. And I'm really excited about it. On the content side, I personally don't know much about food, about growing food and harvesting food, whether it's foraging or hydroponics or those kinds of things. And I'm personally very interested in that. And you asked earlier how we are adjusting going forward based on what's happening with COVID. And that's a that's a two birds, one stone right there. I was interested in food anyway. And obviously, a lot of people right now are thinking about food. For example, over the last few weeks, a lot of people have who, who have otherwise never had a pet in their life have started buying chickens or rabbits uh, to have meat on their property, like meat rabbits and, ch- and chickens and eggs and so on. And so we're seeing this growth of interest in people thinking about food security, which again, to my point earlier, wasn't originated with COVID. COVID is just pouring fuel on that fire because what we were already seeing before COVID in the demographics, for example, is that the number of farmers in this country under the age of 35 went up year over year for the first time since World War II just in the last few years. So people are thinking more about, hey, why don't I have a little a little victory garden in my backyard? Or I'd like to have some chickens for some eggs, things like that. I'm really interested in that topic. I don't know much about it and I'm excited to learn about it. And we're basically going to share that kind of journey of learning about it as we work with experts and take those courses. We will document it and put it up on our website so that other people can learn too. Well, that... That's awesome. That is, uh, I'm by no means an an expert, but that is absolutely on on my side where I've invested the last couple of years with the hobby farm that we have and livestock and stuff like that. We we actually delivered uh, for the very first time this year. We delivered our own sheep, That's awesome. uh, and so you know my wife had to put on the gloves and get up in there and help out and do all that kind of stuff. And it's just a uh, super rewarding, but also very comforting to know that even in a quarantine, like I have steaks on the table every night. Like it's a, it is a nice feeling. And when we put out that guide, I will make sure one of the sections in the guide is get up in there. (laughs) Yeah. Probably could have worded that more gracefully. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but it's true. Right. And that's, that's actually kind of what we're trying to do with people is, is, you know, even just talking earlier about the way that we craft our content, it, people don't want to have a a checklist to memorize that they might have to remember 10 years from now in a crisis. Instead, they want to, they want to learn kind of basic inception stuff. Like if you have to go hunting and you have to take a deer in order to feed your family, you don't need to remember some complicated checklist for the field dressing. Frankly, all you need to do is get it cold, cut it into portions you can carry and avoid any of the poop. That's it. If you can remember that, you can survive with hunting. That's awesome. Yeah. So good Good on you. I, uh, I got to let you go. Thank you so much for taking this amount of time. I really appreciate it. It's an awesome story. I love what you're building. The content is great. I can't wait to see the, the kit builder. If people would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Theprepared.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. If you're 
thinking of launching a SaaS product? Startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.